Hey guys, before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to say a few things. I know that usually when I make a pre-episode announcement, I start off with a fun Star Wars quote just to lighten up the mood, but today I'm just going to cut right to the chase. First things first, Black Lives Matter. And I know that some of you might instantly be thinking, I'll keep politics out of Star Wars, but this issue goes beyond politics. This is about human lives. This is about human rights. And we celebrate a series of Star Wars that is, is all about standing up to evil, standing up for those who are oppressed. And when it comes down to it, the very heart of the series that we all know and love, it's, it's about standing up for what's right. And given the current issues going on in my country, stemming from racism and white supremacy that, that plague the world, really, uh, I just want to make it known that here at Outer Rim Reads, we support an inclusive, loving, open, and accepting community. And today, I just want to make it known that Black Lives Matter. I've been doing my best to read up and educate myself on how I can become a better ally. I've posted a link in the episode description. If anyone wants to learn more about how they can help, how they can donate, how they can learn, even if you don't have any money to donate, the best thing that we can do right now is just to keep our minds open to learn about the struggles that run so deep in the United States, that run so deep in the world. And I know that some people might say, oh, but all lives matter. You know, If you went to a race that was raising money for breast cancer research funding, I don't think that the right thing to do would be to say, oh, but what about all the other diseases that we could be raising money for? No, it's this is not to say that only Black Lives Matter, but right now it is the lives of our black brothers and sisters who are are being oppressed and let down by a system that is just fundamentally broken. And this is a a huge problem that is thankfully getting a lot of attention these days. I hope that it will continue to get attention because this is serious. This issue runs deep and I just want to make it known that here at Outer Rim Reads, we believe that black lives matter and I hope that everyone can play their part in creating just a better world for everyone, no matter the color of their skin. Without further ado, let's get into episode 12 of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 12 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels, both in Legends and canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will continue through Star Wars Thrawn, covering chapters 21 through 23, and I'm joined today by one of my best pals from my college days, John Reimer. John, how are you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. Quarantine life can be tough, but I've chosen to make the most of it. How are you doing? I'm glad to hear that you're doing well and making the most of it here, too. This is Thrive Time for podcasting, Um, but I'm doing good. I'm glad to have you on the show, man. This is a fun opportunity for me because all of my previous guests have read Thrawn at least once before, but you're an interesting case where this is your first time reading through the book. So before we get into your impression on the book as a whole, how about you give the listeners an idea of your background with Star Wars, and then you can talk about your experience with Thrawn. Well, thank you for allowing such a peasant and a neophyte (laughs) on the show. Background with Star Wars, I feel like it's pretty standard across most people. When your parents think that you're old enough, you get introduced to the original trilogy just the films happened to me when i was probably six seven years old and it was the coolest thing it absolutely captivated my imagination and now i mean i can still look back and watch one of those films and they're still terrific they hold up so well that was i guess around the time that the prequels were in theaters so i remember i saw revenge of the sith in theaters and i think that was the only one like as a kid that i saw in theaters i've seen I've seen all five of the, um, you know, the Disney released films yeah. in theaters. I don't need to share my thoughts. I, uh, <laughs> it's a whole other. I don't need to divide your your audience against you. But yeah, and honestly, very limited experience beyond the movies. I remember there was a Clone Wars cartoon series that came out in like 2003. 
and it was made by the guy who made Samurai Jack. Yes, and if you ever go back and revisit it, it's literally Samurai Jack, but subbed in Star with, Wars style. <laughs> with lightsabers and Mace Windu instead of a samurai. And this was my first time thinking, like, what? you mean that there's other things there's more. besides the movies? <laughs> yeah, so I read a couple of books in my time. I never did too much of a deep dive. I was familiar with, I mentioned it before the show, uh, Wikipedia. So every time I'd encounter a new person would pop up wherever you talk about it, I'd go to Wikipedia. And then next thing I knew, I'd be clicking around Wikipedia for like an hour. <laughs> and I felt that I'd learned so much. It sucks you um, in, man. As time went on, I began to gain an appreciation for the fact that it's so fan generated. And that makes it so unique. Just this whole concept of pre-Disney that... George Lucas would just review what people had written, whether they're, you know, full-time professional authors or aspiring comic book artists. If it made its way across George Lucas's desk, he would officially indoctrinate it into the canon, or he wouldn't and say, that was fun, thank you. But just the fact that the fans could actually have a hand in what, yeah, and what the larger story and what the fabric of this universe is, is, is very unique. Yeah, definitely. I actually didn't know that bit about how much pull the, uh, the fans had in the content that got kind of legitimized. Um, that's really cool. That's really cool. Speaking of extra content, I mentioned that you have been reading Thrawn for the first time now. Um, yes. Which, what are your thoughts on the book as a whole, reading it for the first time? This is your first introduction into someone who's become one of the most renowned villains in all of Star Wars. Yeah, he's an awesome villain. And I think we, as people, are just drawn to well-constructed villains. Psychopaths, for like the sake of being psychopaths, aren't super interesting characters. Mm. But somebody like Hannibal Lecter, who's got a mission, and he's got rules, and he's got a code, and he's got a plan, he's always smart, he's always one step ahead of the game, that is like... A delight for us as an audience and and Thrawn's no different when I think of him and the character that you know I've experienced thus far he's similar to a lot of people like that and I'm thinking Hannibal Lecter I'm thinking uh old man Lannister from Game of Thrones oh, yeah, who was cool. my favorite character in the entire show um, <laughs> good old Tywin exactly but he's different in one key aspect to me and that he doesn't really act like he's above it all like if you're not an intelligent competent person and you try and talk to Hannibal Lecter or Tywin Lannister they're not going to give you the time of day they're going to just consider you dirt and keep on walking and part of us I think like loves that sass but Thrawn doesn't really have as much of the sass Every now and again, he's like, oh, like, looks like I was right all along. And we all kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were. But the thing about the writing when it's in his point of view, and it's alternating between what's happening in the story, what people are saying, and the italics of him analyzing that person's body language. I think at first I was a little apprehensive about that. It got kind of exhausting. I'm not <laughs> going to lie, because like there's a story and there's a conversation and Thrawn's like watching this bead of sweat roll down this Imperial officer's forehead. And, and that tells me that he's nervous. Like, okay, thank you, Thrawn. I could have, I think I could have put a little bit of that together, but it also just goes to demonstrate. Yeah. This Chiss is a genius, but he's also so insanely present in every Mm -hmm. moment, in every conversation that he's in, in every situation He is so present and he's not just being dismissive of it because he doesn't think it's worth his time. And that's what gives him such a leg up when it comes to like how he's advancing in his career or how he's solving problems. But I I mean, I find myself kind of rooting for him, even though I know that he's in the Imperial Navy and that means that he's a bad guy. And I, I knew that ever since I watched the first movie when I was seven years old, the Empire are the bad guys, but I mean, we enjoy villains because I think we like taking a little bit of a walk on the dark side Hmm. in a fun and interesting way, you know? I don't know if I could spend a whole book with Sheev Palpatine and his garden and his plot. His tulip garden. Because he's 
you know, he's the ultimate Sith Lord. He is evil for the sake of evil. Thrawn, Eli, Arinda, Yularen, everybody else that we, we kind of seem to like, even though they're in the Empire, they just exist in a different shade of gray. And determining what kind of shade of gray that they're on is just an interesting experience. I like what you're saying, uh, the, the sh- different shades of gray there. Fifty Shades of Gray, Star Wars. No. <laughs> that is... oh, wow. Uh, ooh, ooh. Um... <laughs> what were those movie slaves doing? <laughs> oh, ooh. <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> the uh, director's cut. Um... <laughs> uh, but that's, that's so true that we get it kind of like at different levels of imperialness when we talk about Eli to Thrawn to Price, you know, Yularen, where technically they are all on the bad side. Um, but I feel like we have a, at least I have a hard time of thinking of Eli as being a bad guy. I, where, yeah, you know, I and, and we can get more into that. We, um. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know, Eli, could you just kind of take over your dad's shipping company? Eh, you know, well, what other job are you going to get? Yeah. Oh, I'll just go work for the um, Imperial Navy as a supply officer. I mean, it's he's a humble guy with fairly humble ambitions, right? As as he's grown over the course of the book, we've learned that he's very capable as a you know as a real military combat leader. Yeah. Um, and he's gaining those instincts, and that's like fun to watch. But you know, there's this tiny little in the back of your head, like, well, is he learning to crush rebels? Yeah. What are you going to use your skills for, Eli, right? But if you ignore that feeling, it's a pretty fun ride. We'll see a little bit more into them dealing with rebels as we get into, I think, 22 and 23. But before we get into Eli's spiel, we got uh, chapter 21 that is focusing on Arinda Price. And I'll, I'll give my chapter summary for that, and we can dive into that. And, I mean, we've got a good a good set of chapters ahead of us. So I'm really excited to to see these takes because um, this is very much the where the book has heated up a bit. So I'll give my summary and then we can talk about, uh, talk about Arinda Price. Sounds like a plan. After over a year of working on Coruscant as Lothal's acting governor, Governor Arinda Price finally returns to her home world. Lothalite minister Maketh Tua informs Price that the local miners haven't been as productive under the Empire's rule. Upon learning Price mining has dropped in productivity, Price orders her family's former mine to be shut down. Senator Ranking meets with Price, furious that the mine he has been profiting on is being closed. Price feels threatened by the governor of Kintoni, attempting to become the focal point of the Navy's presence in the Outer Rim. Determined to ensure Lothal as the economic and military center of the region, she convinces Ranking to persuade the Kintoni governor to withdraw her proposal to the Navy. After the Navy awards Lothal with their expansion contract, Senator Ranking is arrested by the ISB for bribery, ending his threat to Price once and for all. Arinda Price. What a character she has become. and Arinda Price. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Before we dive into it, what are, yeah, what are your takes on Arinda Price? I think if we were to give each chapter a little subtitle, chapter 21 will be known as the chapter where John sold his stock in Arinda Price. <laughs> I am selling out. So here's the thing. And I know I just talked earlier about the fact that we like villains, but Arinda's mission seems to have been corrupted as time has gone on. This is just, she was set up when Ranking screwed her parents out of their mind, and, like, the end of that first chapter with her is, like, they're all gonna pay. I'm gonna get it all yeah. back. And then in this chapter, she can't even be bothered. She dissolves the mine. She sells it. Yeah, she gets her good revenge on, I guess, the last person on her hit list, which, like, good for you. But, I mean, it's power corrupts, and that's absolutely on display here. And that doesn't mean I ought to feel sympathy for her. I don't. It's interesting. I would say that I do feel sorry for what she has had to endure along the way being betrayed by her closest friends being used getting fired unfairly by ranking and then being used by Moff Gotti a couple times 
But then we see what she's become in this chapter. And, you know, like you said, she was always on that road to power and wanting to get back at those who, who wronged her. And I think in, in the first chapter that we were introduced to her, where her mother got arrested and Governor Azadi had really pulled the rug out from under her, and then she went to ranking and had to really sell away her family legacy to him in order to pretty much escape with some gain from the situation. I feel at that point, we were in the right to feel bad for her. And Yeah, you know, and then the whole thing, like her being used as a proxy between ranking and Gotti, like I feel bad for her then. Yeah, she's unwittingly a part of the scheme. Gotti smells it and then throws spice on her. <laughs> like, <I'm> yeah. just, <laughs> what? How handy that he just had some, you know, Star Wars <laughs> cocaine to throw on this poor girl. Like, probably enough to, of it where he can afford throwing some got in there. You know, <laughs> right? Exactly. So that was just a little, a little goofy. But yeah, you feel bad for her in those moments. She rises, she falls, but like all that when she's working for Senator ranking, then she get like, she loses her job. So I'm with like up till chapter 21, I'm still in on her. Yeah. And I, I'm rooting for her, but her return to Lethal is like even worse than LeBron returning to Cleveland. Like, Oh, this is my home. And I've always missed Cleveland. People of Cleveland. Haven't you missed me? I'm back. And then he's gone again. And <laughs> yeah, he won a championship for Cleveland, but like, it wasn't his first championship, and but he came up. He came up early on. And he's like, "Oh, I'm all about Cleveland. It's all about Cleveland." And he's actually treated Cleveland way better than Arinda Price is treating Lethal. On that note, let's get into how she's acted in her return, uh, because it, it, she's very ruthless in this chapter, as we've come to expect from her. But this is kind of next level. Um, yeah. So, so. She's back. She is governor of Lothal after a year of kind of running around Coruscant and you know, helping out Grand Moff Tarkin, kind of making a name for herself. Um, but now she is legit governor. We find out on the side that Governor Azadi has been arrested for treason, which kind of opened up that spot for her to fill. And she gets greeted by this minister, Tua, right off the bat. And she instantly is dismissive of Tua and also kind of dismissive of the surroundings that she sees in Lothal, where it's like it can't compare to Coruscant, yet here she is. Yeah, and she becomes like increasingly disgusted by it. But you were raised here. I mean, I guess maybe this just proves that Zahn, as an author, just knows what he's doing. The fact that I'm getting so worked up about this and yeah. that I just started reading it. <laughs> but I just, when you frame somebody as like, oh, I'm doing this for my parents. I'm going to get it all back. And like Coruscant will be exciting, but I can't forget my home. She comes back and she like doesn't like walking on the ground because it's not Coruscant. Like, well, I would argue that she did want to forget her home because she, uh, once she was at Coruscant, she kind of like was never going to go back to the depths from which she rose from. And she, she had intended to get the mine back, which she did before dissolving it. <laughs> um, but I, I mm -hmm. think, because she had gotten rid of her, she had worked to get rid of her Wild Space accent. She kind of pushed away all of her connections from Lothal. You know, she moved from working in a, in a Lothal citizen's assistance office on Coruscant to just working in the politics that, is, that are way above the everyday Lothalite citizen. I guess to me, her motivation for coming back to Lothal wasn't that she was hype about returning home there was no sentiment for her returning home as much as returning in the highest position of power that she could be there. You know, where she's she's more familiar with the surroundings of Lothal than she was with Coruscant. And she's kind of, she's returned as the, the baddest of them all on the world where she started out with pretty much nothing. I guess the only reason why I don't believe you is in the first couple of pages, she just keeps on saying like, oh, she's finally back. Mm. Oh, finally home. And I know like, to ask, like, hey, how long are you staying around? She's like, oh, hopefully, like, permanently or at least a good while. And it ends up being, yeah. like, I don't know, a week. So I just, so so much time and, and emphasis on, like, the word finally. Like, she was finally yeah. back. That her to, like, three pages later start being disgusted by Lethal just really... That's why I'm selling out on her. We're getting, we're getting mixed signals, I guess. But speaking of Tua, because I know we had spoken off mic about your qualm with the lack of timestamps in the book and <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this quote from Tua here where she says it's over a year since you succeeded the governorship in fact I think that was like kind of like an 
odd placement for like it lets the reader in on how long it's been but it just I don't think that you know let's say I was reading you after a while and you were like yeah it's actually been over a year since we've last but you know we'd probably say oh it's been a while but it's kind of like an an odd time stamp. And I assume she she had called Tua to like hey I'll be there on this day probably around this time be there and bring you know the mining output data that would be like if, if you started off and we were both like ah Andrew, been a couple of years since we graduated, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to say that for me to know it. <laughs> so speaking of this this mining output data, because Price has been put in charge of the kind of like the industrial production on Lothal and overseeing that production. And we gather that the miners aren't really working as hard and that Price Mining has apparently tapped out of their vein of dunium, which is, you know, from this whole book, we've been gathering that this metal is the most valuable that's just being bought everywhere by the empire. And so the fact that price mining has apparently run out is just a no-go for price. And that's why she says, all right, shut it down. If there's no dunium, it's just a waste of resources otherwise. Which, like you were saying, it, it just in the blink of an eye after hearing that, oh, wait, there's no more dunium at my former family's mine, then that's all she needs to be like, all right, close the books on it. We're done. Which, yeah, you couldn't. That's that's kind of like the last tie that she cut off from her upbringing at Lothal. Like she's back, but she has gotten rid of her initial motivation to return. I guess. Yeah, and we find out a couple of pages later that she does take care of the workers, right? I yeah. mean, she goes through like a little back channel to establish a new dunium vein for them to work on that like wasn't officially on the books or whatever. But, I mean, on the books, Price Mining, the company, is gone. It's gone. Just in the blink of an eye. And when she goes to talk to Ranking about it, and like, hey, uh, Price Mining, it's gone. I know you're a 10% holder. Company's gone. Like, is revenge really worth all that? I guess to Price, maybe it is. And it it seems petty, but it's it's probably exactly what we've come to expect from the higher-ups in the Empire. They're all about playing that game of revenge because, like you said, Ranking barges into her office just totally pissed that, quote-unquote, his mine has been shut down because he was making a lot of money off of it. And Price is like, yeah, sorry, it's it's shut down. I, I closed it up. And, you know, we can gather that this is mostly off of revenge because right after she sends him away, she does contact, I think, a former co-worker they have like a their polite greeting and they start talking about this vein of dunium that long story short apparently price mining the vein of dunium that they thought was tapped out um, because it had reached like this big block of granite that people thought okay the dunium has stopped here that must be it but she's talking with this former associate and apparently this person whose name is echoes echoes and her company have been mining into this kind of the continuation of the dunium vein that people didn't know existed right so you're right it seems like she just totally closed price mining off to ranking and is allowing this other associate to to mine the dunium on the other side kind of to get back at ranking where it's like her family mine's gone she's got ranking pissed but there is still more dunium to be mined that no one knows about except her and her now associate echoes where you know you you've been reading this book and you know uh, her kind of bitter rivalry now with ranking and as much as you hate price i do love how she shut him down here where he was saying you know you can't expect me to kind of lay down and let you close this mine and she kind of just step by step says first the mine is too small to be worth a big fight from you second you can't really burn any favors over a worthless mine now and third i have powerful friends that you have no clue who they are so don't you try come for me i thought that was a pretty badass interaction by price where i have come to kind of dislike ranking a lot after what he did to her and it was kind of satisfying to see her just kind of shut him down here yeah no and i mean she's turned into the villain that at the top of the show i said that i enjoyed i guess i'm just i'm so thrown off because she had for so long seemed like she was doing it for her parents and because her family had been screwed over not to climb. But now that she is climbing, I'm enjoying what she's turning into. So these moments where she's the one holding all the cards, especially given where she like where she started off with ranking, 
they feel super satisfying. For sure. I think uh, objectively. <laughs> um, but yeah, she has shut down ranking. She shut down price mining. But we, we get a, an interesting transition text scene here before we, we move to uh, her kind of beef with the governor of Kintoni, where we're finding out that the old leaders and families of Lothal are just unhappy at how the empire is treating the planet now, where it's pretty much just building factories, mines, pushing people off farmland in order to mine more. It's pretty much just, you know, Isengard <laughs> now on, <laughs> on Lothal. Um, the fires of industry now have, have just torn through Lothal. And we, we get this quote where we're kind of reminded that the empire is, in fact, the, the empire where, uh, and I quote, the imperial response had been predictable. Repression of speech and curtailment of freedoms, followed by business as usual. Those who claimed the new development would create jobs and prosperity were vindicated. Those who decried the heightened imperial presence and preached doom were reduced to quiet muttering. You know, as much as some people, including myself for a long time, are rooting for Arinda Price and the, the changes that she's, you know, the, the ground that she's making, here we're really seeing... The, the real effects of what she has now brought to Lothal, where she sold out her home world. And now, you know, the authoritarian yeah. regime that we've come to yeah. know from Palpatine and the Empire. I think Arinda's story is full of a lot more, a lot more emotional collateral damage than Thrawn's is. Thrawn's mm. has a lot of literal collateral damage, right? I mean, he's like ripping up farmlands and destroying <laughs> space stations and causing a lot of literal damage. But on the whole, he's saving lives and, and making very good strategic choices that have the best outcomes. Like, if he destroys some property, like, okay. But when you look at what's happening to the people around Orinda, and it's not ranking Gotti, whatever. But the people of Lethal, Wahir, Driller, like, people who, who we know are sort of know as educated star wars readers are the good guys yeah we we are up close and personal a lot more with the effects of of her rise and it doesn't spell out anything good for them so i don't know maybe that's why i've been coming so so hard at orinda besides her like complete 180 on her on her home planet and how she feels about it is also these are the effects of what she's doing these are the yeah. effects of her grabbing power and getting revenge on like you know what if she had to close price mining but couldn't keep the miners in work like how many jobs are you going to sacrifice just to screw ranking out of a couple of extra dollars that he makes from this company because she did reallocate the miners from price mining to i guess Echoes' project yeah, of mining. Price mining the, 2.0. Yeah, 2.0, where they can mine, they can continue having their jobs just, you know, mining the other dunium um, off the radar. Um, but I, I would even think that that decision to give them those jobs, it's just based off of the profit that she can make off of it. There's no sympathy there for anyone where oh yeah you know yeah she saves them their jobs but it's all business and and when we do get a, a glimpse into that mindset from price because she's in her office and she's looking at the sunset outside and yeah, just she's like, realizing what a, what a garbage right, heap <laughs> right she that's exactly it she's realizing how much she does not care for you know for the beauty that lethal offers to her and she just shuts the blinds you know and she's just she goes back to work where it's just this rejection of the natural beauty and i guess just the rejection of her home world really yeah. where the only reason she's here is to be in a position of power and to make the most out of it and, and i really like what you were saying comparing the kind of like the fallout from price and thrawn or contrasting them rather where you know the effects that we see from thrawn's adventures you know torching farmland and uh capturing and the smugglers and you know blowing up parts of space stations this is all in it's all physical damage but price's journey it's it's like a different kind of warfare her, her, her home planet is like losing more and more of its freedoms yeah as she as she ascends and how many other planets you know is that happening to at the same time and then exactly has anybody that she like really crossed paths with in Coruscant turned out okay like I don't know because she either intended to screw them over always like Gotti and ranking and they were her 
her adversaries or they were once her friends and are now in like prison yeah it, all these people are just tools to how she gets uh, how she wants to get where she where she sees herself being and right now she's at the top of that and you know it doesn't really matter who has to fall because of it even if it's just the entire population of her home world losing their yeah. freedoms and and everything their livelihoods for the sake of her like this chapter very much crystallized that type of collateral damage that she's had yeah um and that that's why i'm like okay well-crafted villain but you've lost my sympathy yeah you know we we do see how much she has changed from her her original goals to now it's like she mm-hmm. she is there and now we're seeing just the effects and the the consequences of her getting to where she wanted to be and it's it's not pretty it's it, it's spelling out a sad story for lethal unfortunately um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in this next part of the chapter where we learn about this rivalry with her and uh, governor sans of kintoni she's acting on lethal's behalf here trying to help it out but but for different reasons not really we'll we'll, yeah. we'll get into that so basically there's this kintoni is a planet in in uh, the outer rim that is now trying to get the focus and the attention of the navy to build expansions and new shipyards and and facilities on its planet and price realizes that would be detrimental to lothal and its business if it surrendered its influence in the region to kintoni and so she reaches out to our guy Thrawn and is is trying to petition to him, trying to get his recommendation for which planet he thinks is more deserving of these naval projects. And I think it's a moment of respect here from Price to Thrawn where she recognizes how efficient he is because she gives him these documents that compares Lothal to Kintoni and, and their output numbers and which one would be a more logical center for the Navy and the region. And... It says here that like she acted against her own instincts to forge Lothal's data and make them look better because she knew that Thrawn would probably catch any of that, any of that mm-hmm. funny business. And you know, as he's looking through it, he confirms to her like, yeah, oh, this kind of matches my research from earlier. And so he, in fact, did what she suspected. And I, I like these moments of respect between these two characters where we're reminded how good Thrawn is from the eyes of someone like Price, who it, it takes a lot to earn her fear slash respect. But yet we see her kind of catering her instincts and her behavior to kind of avoid the suspicion of Thrawn. Yeah, it's very much a, a need thing. I've been trying to pay attention to these quotes at the beginning of the chapters, sort mm. of like Thrawn's little, you know, life lessons about warfare <laughs> and being a soldier or whatever. I'd also, as a side note, like to get to the bottom of where they're coming from, because I'm picturing like the movie The Irishman, where he's just in some like retirement home, and he's just like dumping his thoughts like, oh, like a good warrior is always prepared to just whoever is listening. But trying to tie in the quotes from the beginning to events in the chapter is a really rewarding exercise. And so in the first time where I think Thrawn and Price started working together, Thrawn's little quote was all about how like alliances are good and important as long as there's need behind it. And so this is a moment of strategic need where Arinda is thinking like, okay, I got to go make a case for Lothal and I need to have the number crunching genius that Thrawn is to help present my case for me. If I try to phone it in here, if I try to fake up the numbers, he's going to catch it. And if he catches it, that's just one more reason for him not to work with me in this moment. And then also just from a pure storytelling perspective, whenever Thrawn and Price cross each other's paths, there's just a part of me, like the part of me that likes Pulp Fiction so much just rejoices. Like anytime storylines cross (laughs) over with each other, I just love it. So good. So, it's so good. Yeah, I, I exactly. love those moments too. When they just like see each other in passing and now, you know, if actually interacting on kind of a regular basis, it's like, yes, it's, it's, it's cool just to see two, because they started out as two totally different storylines in the book and now they've merged kind of and it. It is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a question here for you because Thrawn does determine that Lothal is the better choice. And he says, and I quote, I always stand ready to assist the Imperial Navy in any way I can. And I'm wondering, do you think he's blind here to Price's motives? You know, she doesn't care 
about the logical decision here. She doesn't care if Lothal is actually the better place for the Navy to put their focus. She she just wants it to be Lothal regardless. Even if Kintonia's, you know, checks all the boxes, she doesn't care about that. Do you think that he's blind to her motives here? Or do you think that he sees them, but just also realizes that they coincide with the Navy's best interests as well? It's absolutely the second one. He knows what she's about. But this is an opportunity, big or small, for him to advance the position of the navy like you know what yeah with all is the better choice if you want to make these ships i mean and it's based out of need he's like you know what yeah it's probably a bigger win for you governor price to get this contract but it'd be a good thing for the navy so i'm going to sign off on it plus i bet she loved hearing him say that because it only makes her case all the stronger in that moment like this guy who well yeah he's getting promoted left and right like it's nobody's business He's getting promoted because he's good at his job, and he's only like in the Navy because he wants to make the Navy the best that it can be. So for That's him it. to say, like, hey, I'm here to serve the Navy, and with that attitude and with these numbers, Lothal is the right choice. That's a huge win for her. Kind of continuing along the theme of huge wins for Price, you know, she ends up going to ranking and convinces him to go to Governor Sons of Kintoni and try to, she tells him, just do what you do best get her to withdraw her proposition to the Navy. And that's all she said. And so we get this closing scene in the chapter where they award the contract to Lothal. And right after that, this ISB agent walks up and arrests Ranking for bribery because he had gone to Sans and his way of getting her to remove her petition was by bribing her out of it. He, you know, he got charged for bribery there and you know, he turns to Price and kind of is like, you know, what's this all about? And, you know, she this was so smart of her where she didn't tell him, oh, go bribe Governor Sons. She just said, go do what you do best, knowing. Yeah. Knowing. Oh, yeah. Knowing what he was, was going to do something illegal. <laughs> Absolutely. And now he's gone, which I thought, yeet. <laughs> I hate this guy. And now he's just, you know, he, he walks away and he's arrested. And that's how the chapter ends. Like just yeah. a huge win for and Price and kind of like closing the last loose end from her struggles. Yeah, this was this was the last and probably the biggest name on her hit list. Um, but this moment is also where the quote from the beginning comes up, because the quote from the beginning is all about traps. And like the warrior may not know the battle has started until it's already begun. Like, Ranking didn't know that Price was going to get him until the ISB lady was putting the cuffs on him for bribery. And she says, uh, I have recorded myself in our conversation by only saying, hey, you know, go do what you do, you know, end quote. So seeing where those quotes in the beginning pay off is not just kind of a fun, like, oh, why does Zahn include the quote at the beginning? But it's also he includes it for the moments that have a big impact on the story. And yeah, this was this was the last person on her list. You know, she's taken down Gotti, she's taken down Ranking now, and really her her lane is clear now, which is a great moment from a certain point of view. Yep, especially <laughs> with uh, especially with Tarkin, yeah, supporting her. I got it. Oh, she yeah. Before we move on from this chapter, one tiny little moment that I love because I don't like Price anymore was she goes to Tarkin's secretary and he's not in Coruscant. And she's bummed out because Tarkin's secretary doesn't immediately recognize her. It's like that's <laughs> right. Big that's names. right, Price. There are <laughs> there are much bigger fish in the sea. Yeah. Even the secretary was like, Who are you? <laughs> yeah, uh, Price from where again? Brenda, you're not showing up on the list. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. How do you spell it? Because uh... you, you might know Yularid and Thrawn and, and Tarkin personally, but outside of that, it's like, that's the, I guess that's the, the fall of all these backroom dealings that no one, you, you know if you know. And the secretary is just like, she has no reason to suspect that and just, Price yeah, and Tarkin and, know each and other. And I love it too, because this is also so, like, Tarkin's got all the relationships. Yeah. Tarkin's got all the power. So, like, how many other people, like Price, has Tarkin been supporting on their rise and come into that office asking to see Tarkin, and Price is just one of all those people, and she hates that, and I love it. Yeah. I mean, that that is a, a good point, is that for all the gains that she's made, to some people, she'll only ever just be just another person visiting the office, which yeah, is... Exactly. Uh... <laughs> A humbling moment, 
uh, oh, what, what's Prez. that? Like, secretary's like, oh, what's that? You're a governor? Like, oh, go wait in the waiting room with all the other governors. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course you're governor, sure. And I'm the, yeah, I'm the supreme sure. chancellor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sheev. <laughs> <laughs> Removes the mask and is actually Palpatine. <laughs> <laughs> Potted flowers on the desk. <laughs> tulips, you know, <laughs> tiptoeing through the tulips yet again. But yeah, that closes out chapter 21. Um, any any closing thoughts before we move on to chapter 22? I mean, you've kind of made your stance very apparent. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've made my stance apparent. I This is not, like, she's an interesting character and she's an interesting villain. And I love her inclusion in the story. Not just when, like, she and Thrawn literally cross paths, but the fact that they have similar arcs. They're both overcoming obstacles to gain power within the Empire it's just a fun addition, but yeah, as far as a, a sympathetic character goes, like, I don't care. I don't care how much spice she got thrown <laughs> on her. Tarkin can throw some more on her, and I won't feel bad. I don't Tarkin care if it stains her nice dress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. I think you're the first one, the first guest who's who's been on that has just truly been, and rightfully so, I guess, just like critical of, of, of Price. Um, hey, and, I mean... And, and, <laughs> I mean, this can, is why I have you on. <laughs> these are these are my takes. You can you can like them. You can not like them. Yeah, it is what it is. So yeah, I'll get into my summary for chapter twenty-two, and then we can go in from there. Sounds like a plan. The Chimera travels to the planet Bodajef to quash a secession revolt. En route to Bodajef, Thrawn and Eli discuss the Navy's massive secret project and Thrawn studies Jeffy art in order to gain a tactical advantage over them. He predicts Bodajef Governor Quessel to send his forces to face off with a chimera upon entering the system, and that is exactly what happens. Arriving to Bodajef, the Imperials see turbolaser emplacements surrounding the Capitol building. Governor Quessel hails the chimera, demanding they leave or be fired upon. After Quessel refuses Thrawn's request to disarm, Thrawn sends a squadron of TIE fighters to destroy the turbolasers. Distracting Quessel with the attack, the Chimera engages its tractor beam on one of the Jeffy Corvettes, and they discover Governor Quessel to be on board and trying to flee the system with a host of stolen Jeffy artwork. They arrest Quessel, ending the conflict. So we're back with Thrawn here, and I don't know Thank if- God. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> good, good for you. I've been kind of keeping tabs on throughout the book how imperial sounding certain names are, whether they're of ships, whether they're of people. Because Thrawn and Eli are are told by Fleet Admiral Denasius to head to uh-huh. Bodajef, and I thought, what a badass name! Like Denasius, yeah. that's that's legit. <laughs> are we sure this guy so, isn't a Sith? That is, like that's a pretty Sith name. Darth Denasius. Oh, get the alliteration in there too. It sounds yeah, he could be. <laughs> he could be the the other. Because <laughs> uh, you know we haven't heard of Vader in this book yet. Maybe it's uh, you know maybe Sheev has another apprentice. So yeah, we haven't we haven't heard him by the name Vader. Only Thrawn yeah. said that he knew Anakin Skywalker. And Palpatine's like, oh well, uh, we don't use that Oop. name anymore. But good reference, <laughs> bud. <laughs> I see what you're trying to do. Um. (laughs) It's like walking up to Wayne Manor and being like, you know, I'm a huge Batman fan. And Bruce Wayne being like, oh, uh, great. Interesting. Uh, Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Show you my garden. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, we we get an interesting moment here because the reason that they're being sent to Bodajef is because this Governor Quessel is trying to secede the planet from the Empire. And this scene is in Eli's point of view, and we're gathering his reaction towards the facial expressions of the rest of the bridge crew, where they all are tense. You know, they're heading into pretty much a round two of what the Clone Wars was all about, where it's just the Separatists seceding from the Republic, and now there's a planet who's trying to secede from the Empire— and they're all probably thinking back to how bloody the Clone Wars were. And he, and Eli's thinking, no one wants a repeat of that. And exactly. I was thinking that probably a lot of them had fought in the war themselves. And I think this is a glimpse into how even those in the Empire, even if they're the bad guys, there's a lot of them that don't want war, where lives are at stake. And we kind of, I love the humanity that we can 
see in guys like Eli and also the the bridge crew here where, you know, Pharaoh is one of them and, and just the other officers there where no one really wants to go in and start killing people because they've been through that and it wasn't, it, it was bad. Yeah, absolutely. It's, they know that they're like, if they don't play this right, five other planets could join Boto Jeff and want to secede and then you're just going to have a terrible situation on your hands, right? They're not worried about losing. It's not like, oh man, we're outnumbered and outgunned here. It's no, no, no. Like we could crush these guys in an instant, but if we do that, where's it going to lead? But at the same time, if we let them get away with this and we let them just secede and we don't really show them, you know, who's really in charge here. Well, what are we going to get in that situation? So yeah, they're all thinking, yeah, it's not the consequences of today, it's the consequences of playing today wrong. That is really good, because they're thinking larger picture here, which is great teaching from Thrawn, and they're talking amongst themselves, because Thrawn is, has opened the floor to the officers, asking them to comment on the situation, give their thoughts, and they know that they have, and I quote, we've got enough firepower here to carve our initials into Bodhijev's bedrock. And I, you know, first of all, that'd be funny if they're just carving like, hey, Thrawn was here onto their, you know, just turbolaser artwork. <laughs> but they, they know, smells. right? <laughs> Eli, <laughs> Governor Quessel sucks. <laughs> just like smack talking, just like texting via turbolaser, <laughs> subtweeting, where they know that they have the firepower to just annihilate these guys, but there's got to be a reason here that Quessel is inviting them there. But, but it is a fine line to walk where there's consequences on both ends. If they let them walk, because there's been a lot of unrest in the galaxy, other systems might follow them. If they hit too hard, that might also have lasting impacts uh, on the planet and, and their reputation um, as well. So it's a very fine line that they've got to walk here. But they go to Bojadef nonetheless, and on the way, Thrawn is studying their artwork, trying to gain an advantage. We get a good text where he's literally just analyzing the... Let me see if I can find it. Um, like the rise and fall, like every time they get yeah. a new leader, like the line evens out, and then they're thrown into governmental chaos for a little bit, and oh, the art's all squiggly, and then, yeah. Yeah, which is, I was going to ask your reaction on, on his analysis of the art because, yeah, he's looking at kind of like the curves and slants and kind of like straight lines and um, just how the art deviates in patterns at time to reflect kind of their rocky history where we've gathered and we've learned that the from the bridge conversation that the Jeffy are a loyal people. Loyalty is huge to them. And if you prove that you're a good leader, they'll follow you. And in their artwork, it reflects kind of like those short-lived periods of loyal leaders and it might get a little bit rough at times and like divisions in the art that are then like the patterns renewed signifying like another leader and you know, their culture is very much shown in their art and I just, I just wanted to gather like what are your reactions on seeing kind of Thrawn looking at just we don't know what sculptures he's looking at but he's looking at the art and he's gathering all of that from yeah. just the shapes that he's seeing first off I think he's what my sophomore year of college art teacher tried to be which is like, well, John, what do you see here? It's like, well, you know, I see a picture of a, a young girl. No, John, like, look at the lines. Look at the waves of her hair. What does that mean? Like, I don't know. There's a breeze. I I would, <laughs> we know by now that art is Thrawn's thing. And if he wants to study a new species, he goes and he looks for their artwork and he reads into it. But, I mean, I guess I would think that like, okay, if these people have, respect for their leaders, their art's going to be nothing but gorgeous, like, sculptures of their leaders. But instead of that, he looks at the lines on their art, and he just sees, like, this cyclical, they have a leader, they don't. They have a leader, they don't. I mean, it feels like a stretch, but we, we know by now he's going to be right about it. He always is, and he is very <laughs> yeah. right. Uh, when he's talking with Eli about what he's predicting from Quessel's response, where saying like he's going to send his forces out they're going to face off and eventually attack us and you know he is right about that before we get into their arrival to boda jeff we have a good moment from eli here and you know we've been able to keep tabs on how eli's progressed in his analysis of situations and he's very more politically adept than thrawn and you know he's always suspecting a high command to try and backstab thrawn at some point um, around every turn and I like his analysis here where he's saying that 
this could be a trap where if he wins this showdown, it could just look like just this this alien commander just stepping all over people that were just trying to follow their leader. They're just trying to be loyal to their leader. But if he loses, they could paint him as incompetent. You know, I, I just love these little moments of insight from Eli where you know, he's he's showing in kind of like a different way than Thrawn the, the outcomes of what each situation could yield in a way that Thrawn throughout the book hasn't been able to realize. And I don't know, I, I thought it was a, a good moment from Eli just pointing those two facets out and just preparing Thrawn for what this situation could mean on a grander political level. Yeah. And that's, I feel like Thrawn had the same appreciation that everybody on the bridge did of, if we play this wrong, we could be facing civil war. But this is Eli saying, hey, like, you could avert civil war and still lose in the eyes of the Imperial Navy here. And Eli's always been full of these moments. He's, he's always been very kind of suspicious of people trying to, trying to squash Thrawn, but with good reason. And, I mean, Thrawn's all the wiser to take his advice. I have one more little Eli moment for you. Sure. I think maybe before this conversation starts. So it, it starts with Eli's point of view and it's, you know, the people on the bridge and they're getting ready to talk. Eli is starting to read people's body language similar mm. to Thrawn does. It's not written with italics, but he can like start, he can sense tension in the room he sees Thrawn like sort of get the call about Bodajef and like step away and think for a moment. And Eli's like, ooh, like that's important because Thrawn's already got his plan right there. He's starting to pick up on body language, which is just one more thing that he's continuing to learn from Thrawn. But it's being written into the book in a very subtle way, which I'm really appreciating. Like you said, it's not as in your face as just Thrawn having these italic sections yeah. <laughs> throughout or sentences exactly. where it's just it's a very organic perception from Eli where he's kind of feeling the tension in the room and noticing like when Thrawn kind of just is staring blankly into where the hologram had disappeared like and mm -hmm. he's thinking hard this is he knows the gravity based on his body language that's a good point that that is really good so they arrive to Bodajef and they're greeted by a couple of corvettes and some squadrons of V-19 fighters and they see that there are these turbo laser uh, emplacements around the government building and Commander Pharaoh is kind of shocked at this. Like, why do they have those so close to the government palace? And she says, and I quote, he's really counting on Imperial restraint, isn't he? To which Eli responds, more likely he doesn't understand Imperial gunner accuracy, ma'am, which is gold from Eli. Uh, just mm -hmm. like these nice little quips. That is, but, that is, like Thrawn could have said that. But Eli's is growing great in these uh, little moments. But exactly. I, I also thought that kind of highlighted the difference in the books to the movies in the Imperial Gunner accuracy because they're able to light up a mine of a, a vein of spice from orbit. Um, but in the movies, they, they can't hit shit. <laughs> hey, man, maybe, maybe the Rebels have their own version of Thrawn and they're like, okay, it's all a pattern. And once you learn the pattern, Oof. you can avoid these guys. Right? That um, might be a plot twist. And, and look, these aren't stormtroopers. Firing their rifles here. These are these are ships. We assume that these ships at this point still have great training. I don't know if like the education system within the Empire kind of deteriorates by the time like Luke Skywalker shows up, and that's why <laughs> the officers get so incompetent. Or Thrawn's just like lucky to have a good batch of well-trained people around him. He does have know. a good effect on those around him, I think, and you know, I, I think that does play a part into it. For sure. You know, he's much but, more... But yes, Andrew, the line of Imperial Gunner accuracy <laughs> it's like does not that. age well in nope. the larger Star Wars timeline. Not like fine wine. No. <laughs> it's kind of just like milk that stays in your fridge. It's, you know, it starts out yeah, great it's, it's good in Thrawn's book. It's good now. <laughs> it's good when he needs it. But... but let's talk about Thrawn's strategy here. So he has the his TIE fighters kind of make a screen in front of the Chimera, and then he also sends a couple of uh, TIEs to make flybys by the corvettes flying mm. really close just doing a quick old flyby and when they did that Thrawn notices that one of the corvettes kind of twitched at that reaction where it's like this tie fighter flew too close and they reacted kind of as if to avoid it and the other corvette stayed motionless the even with the flyby it just did not move a small scene but we'll discuss that import uh, the importance uh, 
when the when the battle's up. So Quessel contacts them, and I love this moment here where because Thrawn's asking him to disarm. He's saying that there's this Clone Wars treaty that your planet signed. You're in violation of it of it right now. You have to disarm first. And he's saying, and I quote, "You want those turbo lasers gone, Commodore Thrawn? Fine." Do it yourself. And Thrawn's just like, very well. <laughs> and then he has, it's just, he's like, okay, sends the, yeah. sent them some TIE fighters to blow up the turbo lasers at the palace. And it's just like, okay, fine. Yeah. You asked for I mean, it. This is, exactly. This is the military version of that card game they were playing in the academy, where it's all about bluffing and who's got the better cards. And my man here thinks that he's got the better cards because he's like, you know what? You're going to try to blow up my cannons. And you're going to wreck my palace, and everybody's going to see it, and now I'll be the martyr that, like, I'm looking for. So, like, I dare you. Go ahead. But Thrawn truly actually has the better cards, because he's got the Imperial Gunner accuracy that, in this point in time, is still the best card. I love that callback, and that's that's a great connection, where... Quessel thinks he has this unbeatable hand where it's like, Mm -hmm. either way, you're going to look like the bad guy here. And I love kind of Thrawn's clap back here when he says that his Quessel kind of make this big deal about, you know, I'm going to die with grace and dignity and, you know, you're going to have to literally blow us up in order to get what you want. And, And Thrawn just says calmly, and I quote, your spirit is admiral, but your dramatics are quite unnecessary. And they just We're not handing out any Academy Awards around here, You're the wrong show, man. (laughs) And while Quessel is distracted by these ties blowing up these turbo lasers, the Chimera gets one of these Corvettes in his tractor beam, and we see that the image of Quessel in the hologram shakes because Mm -hmm. he is on that Corvette. And... You know, we find out, like you were saying, that he was trying to bait the Imperials to destroy the palace, and that would have covered up his theft of the art, because we see in the background of his hologram, there's a bunch of expensive artwork that he has with him, and then the Jeffies also would have been like, you just blew up our palace, we're definitely attacking you now, and it would have turned into this whole shit show, where Mm -hmm. it's exactly kind of like that Civil War-ish battle that could have ensued, and how Thrawn knew that he was on the Corvette because of how it twitched, where that showed that it was a human crew, that, that Quessel was trying to escape with his human crew, where the Corvette that didn't twitch was piloted by the Jeffies, who had trusted their leader. It's back to that theme of loyalty from them, where it's like, we're following your lead, we're not going to twitch no matter what they try, we're not going to flinch at whatever they throw at us. And that's how Thrawn was able to know which Corvette Quessel was on. Yeah, I, I wrote in my notes here. My notes were written just sort of like thoughts in the order that they happened in the chapter. I couldn't really always link them back. I wrote down a couple of like quote quotes, but my notes say, quote, Quessel tried to hit him with the old switcheroo, end quote. The old switcheroo. The old switcheroo. I think <laughs> would, be, would be the subtitle of this chapter, the old switcheroo. <laughs> I need you writing. I need, I need you to write the screenplay for this. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, add two things. Book. I'm gonna add years, so we know. Oh yeah, timestamps would be and nice. I'm gonna, I'm gonna add stupid little subtitles to each chapter. I'm looking forward to that. I need that content. Because <laughs> uh, and it and it didn't work. And I I love that Thrawn actually had made up the whole bit about the Clone Wars treaty. There was no treaty, but he was just trying to buy time and distract yeah. Quessel, which it's it's great thinking by Thrawn, and it was really convincing. Especially because I feel like we don't hear Thrawn lie a lot. Like, mm. he's very smart. He's very smart, and he can sort of bluff his way through cards, but, like, he usually has the upper hand, and he just is like, okay, you want to call me? Here I go. Like, that, that's not actually bluffing. Like, if you have the good hand, you're not bluffing. Yeah. So we just, we rarely see him lie. And so for him to like pull this fake treaty right out of who knows where and throw it at this guy just to stall for time is is awesome. But it felt like something new for him. He created his upper hand there instead of just, you know, being brilliant in the moment. He kind of just created the the material to make the moment exactly what he needed Mm -hmm. it to be. I love this bit where, because they're bringing the ship in uh, with a tractor beam and the stormtroopers are going to board it. And he's telling you, did you grab the same quote that I did? uh, Let's see here. I, I love where he said, and I quote, take care with the prisoners take even better care with the artwork that's the one that's the one this is andrew this is this is leave the gun take the cannoli this is 
this is an instant classic. So I'm glad that you grabbed it too. It's so good. Also, just from Thrawn, where we know how much he loves art, but he's like, he's being civil yeah, with the if, prisoners. If, Don't hurt them. If, if one of those prisoners but... <laughs> falls out of the ship, like, okay, whatever. You got to break a couple of eggs. But if yeah, one yeah. of those 57 pieces of artwork falls, then heads are going to roll. Me. <laughs> heads are going to roll for the artwork. And so it's, uh, it's just so good. Where he's like, yep, the artwork is what's really important here. And, and before we close up this chapter, um, Thrawn had a lot of great lines here, in my opinion where just from his clapbacks to Quessel and just how cold and just like a bit of cold sass, where I think that the theme of Jeffy loyalty kind of played into how Thrawn treated Quessel because Quessel was very, you know, he he stole the artwork from the uh, Jeffies and he had said to Thrawn, talking to Thrawn about, you know, why he stole the artwork, he said, and I quote, they're worth hundreds of millions, Commodore, maybe even billions, and all they do is sit collecting dust in a third-rate building on a fifth-rate world. First of all, I'm like, great, another imperial racist, that's awesome, you know, exactly what we expected. But it shows how he's taken advantage of the Jeffy loyalty there, where they saw him as their leader, and they trusted him implicitly as their culture goes. And Thrawn, who is a Chiss, and we have learned from Eli's knowledge of the Chiss and the legends about them, that that the Chiss value loyalty a lot, too. And we're seeing... Oh, good for you. You know, we're, we're seeing Thrawn see this guy manipulate a species because of their loyalty coming from Thrawn who is implicitly loyal himself and I think that might have added a bit of a personal note for Thrawn here where we did see a lot of more coldness from Thrawn in, in his treatment of Governor Quessel probably because it, it struck a, a, a note with him where he values loyalty and he just saw a whole people get manipulated by this racist imperial governor taking advantage of their loyalty to just make a pretty penny off of it. That's a great point. And the governor was like, if his plan worked, he's gone with all this art that one more personal note for Thrawn. The governor doesn't care about the art. He cares about the money that the art can fetch. That's a good point. I think I, I also kind of read that line of like him low key trying to bribe Thrawn for a minute. Like, Hey man, you let me slide. I'll split this artwork with you. But yeah, that is that is a great catch, Andrew, because this is a guy who's manipulating some other race of being out there, some outer world group that, for all intents and purposes, could have been the chess, could have been Thrawn. Like, you're right. Yeah. That is that is an excellent point. And, you know, I, I just I love how Thrawn just kind of just put that case to rest where we've got a couple of lines in different chapters from Eli where another day, another mission, another day, another crisis. And I wrote here my notes, another day, another thick dub for uh, for Thrawn. So um, <laughs> <laughs> so that ends chapter 22 here, man. Do you have any uh, any closing thoughts on 22? I do. I do sort of more about how it functions within the story. I'm really enjoying these little self-contained adventures that have their own little climax and resolution. But at the same time, they they have con like they have another Dunium leading to the Death Star conversation. Yeah. In this chapter, I hate the way they got there because he's like, you could end up in trouble and be put on an ore freighter, and he's like, our last commanding officer was on an ore freighter. They like ore. How's that Dunium project been going? Like, that felt a little forced to me. It was a pretty but, clunky conversation but there's, bit. There's two sort of larger plot lines beyond just like Thrawn and Orinda's rise. And the first one is Thrawn versus Night Swan. And the second one is Thrawn uncovering what's going on with the Dunium and saying it without saying it, this large project that's being built somewhere with the largest hyperdrive ever, the biggest thing the world has ever seen. What could it be? Who knows? Wink, wink. He hasn't, he um, hasn't seen the movies, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, clearly, because <laughs> he still thinks Imperial Gunners can aim. Um, yeah. But I love that even within these little vignettes, there's references to those larger plot lines. Like, the last couple, it's been like, oh, man, is Night Swan behind this? Like, oh, this looks like it has Night Swan all over this. I'm I'm interested in seeing where those larger plot lines go, but I'm also just refreshed by a tiny little self-contained chapter. So very well done. Chapter 22 is a winner. Yeah, that's that's good. We're, we're one and one right now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, 
21 was a good chapter. I just didn't like it at the end of it. Yeah. And there Um, it is. I've said it. Well, we've been talking a while here. I think that we might uh, call the episode here. We'll probably come back with a part two cover in chapter 23. Uh, a lot of good discussion, John. Really appreciate you coming on the show, man, to talk about uh, you know, these chapters from a fresh set of eyes. Thank you so much for making the time, man. Yeah, and thanks for having me. I mean, this has been a great way to pass the time during quarantine, just digging into this story in a familiar setting, and that it's Star Wars. But I mean, I've got I've got new characters, um, very interesting ones, an interesting plot, and you know, for my little nits that I've picked with Zahn and his writing, overall super engaging and I'm super into it. So yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm glad that you're enjoying the ride so far. And I know that you had, you had told me that you've only read up to what we're covering. And so the rest of it is very much still a mystery to you. So I'm, I'm excited to see your reactions as, as you go on to finish the book. But uh, but yeah, thanks so much for making the time, man. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media, feel free to give our Twitter account a follow at Outer Rim Read Pod. And you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, feel free to give the show a good review if you're enjoying it. Good reviews on Apple Podcasts really help other listeners who are interested in Star Wars literature to find Outer Rim Reads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha. It is produced by Andrew Geha. It is edited by Andrew Geha. And we will be back in two weeks with episode 13. So until then, sit back and enjoy. We've got some live music scheduled soon. Word has it Figurin' Dan and his band play some catchy tunes. <laughs>